0: We've been obviously studying the book of John, and last week what happened, we learned a powerful passage as uh, Jesus uh, illustrated what was going to happen in a, in a, a tangible way. He washed the disciples' feet as, a, as an illustration of something even more deep that was coming later in his death on the cross that would uh, clean each one of us. And uh, so he's finished his public ministry, as we heard last week, it's done. He's presented all seven of his signs that John chose were enough for people to believe that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, and by believing have life in his name. And so now he's gathered his closest companions, and he's in an upper room. He just washed their feet, uh, and now he is going to prepare them for his departure. How to live without the physical presence of Jesus among them. So we pick it up, John chapter 13, and uh, are you ready? Uh, I love this passage of scripture, I'm just going to tell you up front, it is going to challenge us, unlike many others, but I just invite you to open up your heart and your mind. John chapter 13, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Even now, Jesus is preparing his people and he's giving them a hint that they will be sent. And you, uh, those of us who grew up in the church, you know that he's going to stand there and Jesus is going to commission them to go into all the world, that they will receive the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses. And uh, so he's saying that whoever receives the one I send, that is you in the room, he's saying uh, receives me, and if they receive you and me, they also receive the Father in heaven. and uh, so again he 's already pointing them to the fact that they will be sent. John 1321 and after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit, troubled in spirit. we 've seen this before chapter 11. remember in front of the tomb of Lazarus he 's troubled in spirit. As Arthur taught so well, uh, and if Arthur is listening, God bless you. Thank you for opening the words so well to us. Arthur won't share. Remember, he's troubled in spirit when his hour had come, when he's finally realizing that uh, the purpose for which he's coming is upon him. And uh, now here, with the knowledge uh, of a traitor among his disciples, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. What's utterly fascinating is what happens next. His disciples stared at each other at a loss to know which of them he meant. You and I are so familiar with this story. We've read this so much. We live on the other side of it all that we we think Jesus would, the disciples would all go, oh yeah, and I'll point to Judas. No clue. None whatsoever. In fact, in Matthew 26, he tells us that they actually then at this moment began to say to Jesus, is it me? Is it I? They had no clue. Now this, this is worth a pause, isn't it? It is possible to be so fitting into a Group of Christ followers, yet not have the love of Jesus within your heart. You can look like a follower, act like one, say the right things, you know, do the appropriate activities, be a part of the gatherings, even see Jesus change life in front of your very eyes. You can play the part and not be one of his true followers. Maybe in the quietness of your heart and mine, we ought to take a moment to solemnly reflect and ask this question, Lord, is it me? Now, true believers ever since Acts 2, we have an advantage that Peter didn't have. We can experience what Jesus is gonna teach in the coming chapters, that is that there's the Holy Spirit that's gonna come in and fill us and give internal witness. The scripture exhorts us to make our calling and election sure. Do you know, friends, do you know that you are a child of God, a true disciple? One of my mentors, uh, Martin Sanders, would say often, he would tell me we'd have lunch, and he'd say, you know, Jerry, never shy away from asking people whom you think would never believe that they're not a believer. He said, I would do this often. I'd get a guy for lunch. I remember this time he told me, I I was speaking to an elder of a church, and he said this, now, not in your worst days, because we all have bad days, but do you ever wonder silently, am I really a Christian? He said this elder looked at him across the table and he said, I wonder that all the time. I voice it to my wife and she says, don't be silly. And so Martin said, what do you think really? And he goes, I don't think I am. He said, I led him to Christ right at the dinner table. We can be so fitting in to the life of a church and not actually be an authentic follower of Jesus. It can happen. And I think I think it gives us all pause, doesn't it? Am I really? Do you know for sure? Well, after they look at each other, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's he? This is the first time it's actually mentioned in the whole gospel. And we find out later, it's John, the one who's writing. The one who's like... Jesus was reclining next to Remember, we learned last week how they eat in a meal like this, in a sort of a U-shaped upper room, not like, you know, who, wrote, who painted that picture? The Last Supper? That's right. Not like that. They're not in chairs and tables sitting in a row. They're actually in a big U-shaped thing, very low to the ground, resting on pillows or couch-type things on their left elbow. Their feet sort of extended diagonally that way and all around. So the one who is next to Jesus, Jesus would have been in the center, and right to his right would have been John. And um, we don't know where Peter sat, but he wasn't there. He wasn't tight, close there. And he does something because the suspense is killing him. You know what? Don't you love Peter? He sits and he gets John's attention. He goes, "Come ask. Who is it?" He says he signals to him, right? He motions to him. Leaning back against Jesus, what happens? Because John is right beside him. All he needs to do is this. And he's right against Jesus. He asks him, Lord, who is it? Now, most commentators say that the rest of the disciples cannot hear this conversation. So he's literally, his face is right by his ear. Who is it? And Jesus says, the one who I dip the sop in. I will give a piece of bread and I'll dip it into the dish. That's who it is. Then dipping it in, he gives it to Judas. You see, in Middle Eastern culture of that day, dipping a bread into a dish was a signal of special friendship, an extension of fellowship and a mark of honor. Not just that, there was a second thing that Jesus did even before that that actually was an extension or, or reaching out to Judas. Judas would have been immediately to Jesus' left, not hiding around a corner like in Da Vinci's picture. No, he would have been right there because Jesus dips it and then hands it to him. If John's on the right, he would have been on the left in a place of honor. Think about this. Jesus knows there's a betrayer. They're having the last supper together. And Jesus, they come into the room, and I'm sure Jesus invites Judas to sit right beside him in a place of honor. And then he honors him as a special guest, as an extension of friendship and fellowship, and he gives it. Many writers say a last appeal to Judas's conscience. But he rejects it. Not the food. But verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. You see, Satan had already given ground to Satan, the devil, by he, you know his natural greedy heart. And then Satan put an idea in his mind about betraying Jesus. And when he takes that morsel and eats the bread and then is going to leave rejecting, actually taking the bread, but actually rejecting the offer that's behind it. Satan then seizes control over Judas and will now destroy Jesus whom he hates. You see, not everything is only as it seems. There is a spiritual world, a dynamic behind the physical, and the enemy of Christ is given ground in Judas's life. But as C.S. Lewis says, there's a magic deeper still. That even behind that scene, there's a deeper one where God the Father and Jesus Christ are in utter and total control of the entire situation. And they are allowing the natural response in the Sinfulness of Judas's heart and even the work of Satan himself, they are allowing it to take place to fulfill a deeper promise and a plan of God, who's in total sovereign control of the entire thing. Jesus is in control of his coming death, and he says to Judas, What you're doing, do it quickly. In fact, go faster. Why? Because the Passover's coming and I'm on a clock and I know when I'm going to die and you need to do this and go do it now. And it's just going to be a few hours when suddenly they will find themselves in the garden where Judas leads the betrayers to arrest Jesus. Jesus is in total control. Friends, we learned it last week. He is not a victim of some treacherous traitor. He was in total control behind the scenes deeply and his plan was unfolding. Verse 28. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Remember, they couldn't hear it. But then suddenly Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And they couldn't understand that. Now, so since Judas was in charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to go and give something to the poor. These were very practical, tangible things that he would have done many times. So they're saying go quickly is to go buy the stuff we need for the festival that's coming up. Or one of the things that happened at that time of the festival was special alms were given to the poor. And so they thought that Jesus must have meant to say, hey, quickly go out and take care of these things. In verse 30, and as soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And John is a masterful storyteller. It was night in more ways than simply the time of day noted by a first-hand witness of this event. No, it was night within Judas's soul. It was a symbol of the spiritual darkness that enveloped him. It was night with Satan's evil control. It was night in the rejection, his rejection of Jesus, the light of the world. It was night at the impending arrest and death of the beloved Son of God. It's always night for those who reject Jesus, the light of the world. Remember in this whole gospel, we, this dynamic of light and darkness has been playing out many different times. So when Jesus says it was night, there's more to that. There's a double meaning there. Verse 31, and when he was gone, that is when Judas had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. You see, he could say now because of this. Jesus freely accepted, in fact, behind the scenes was planning the whole situation, and he accepted the consequences of Judas' action, which would now kick the whole plan into overdrive. There is no turning back. And so his. His betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection, all of that is seen because now it's happening. The wheels are now in full gear. That's why he can say now the, the son is glorified and the father. He is glorified in Jesus' obedience to the plan and God is glorified in the plan of how to take care of the sin of the entire world. So now, the sequence of events that will end in his ultimate glorification have been accelerated and he can say now. Verse 33, my children, takes on a very tender tone here like a father. The imagery, the backdrop of the Passover meal was the father would speak and teach the children about what was going on in the Passover meal. So he speaks to them tenderly as children. He says, I will be with you only a little while longer. You'll look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I go, you can't come. He's telling them there's a separation coming. I'm gonna be gone physically. What I'm going to do, no one else can do. You can't follow me here. I'm going to take care of the sin of the world, and I'm not going to be with you anymore, and you can't come on this one. This is one I have to do myself. And he's telling them so they'll be prepared when it does happen. And now Jesus gives them a brand-new commandment. This will be the focus of our morning. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, will everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In the upper room, with his friends, Jesus institutes a brand new commandment. NT Wright says it is the simplest, clearest, hardest commandment of all of them. Is it simple? It's simple not simplistic. It's hard. My friend, uh, he was a friend of my father's. I knew him, you know, discussions, and also he was a professor of mine at CBC one time, Robert Willoughby, he wrote a commentary on John, and and Mr. Willoughby said this, the world in which these disciples would minister after Jesus leaves would be pervaded by selfishness, bitterness, resentment, hatred, racism, division, partiality, segregation, individualism, abuse, greed, condemnation, criticism, gossip, slander, deceit, disunity, jealousy, selfish ambition, manipulation, and on and on. That's the world that these disciples were going to be supposed to live in and carry out the mission. Does it sound like our day? They needed an entirely different dynamic flowing among them to sustain them in unity or they would destroy each other and the mission would be aborted. They needed a different dynamic flowing in them to sustain their unity, the love of Jesus to fill them. And if they were going to communicate to a loveless world, they would need to model this reality and make it part of who they were. So after Jesus teaches about foot washing, he commands them to love each other. It's not a suggestion. It's not a hint. It's a command. And in case they missed it, he said, you must. And then he calls it new. New in a couple of ways, first in the extent to which they are to love. This was a command of to love neighbor has been in since, you know, the Older Testament, since the Exodus and Leviticus, we are to love neighbor how? As yourself. And Jesus is saying now the as, the degree, the extent to which we love is now changed under the old covenant, love your neighbor as they love themselves. In the new covenant, we are to love each other, as NT writes as better than ourselves. Not just as ourselves, better than ourselves. The differences in degree and self sacrifice this evokes. So, Jesus loved people who were very different, who were self centered, who were not at the same spiritual maturity level, who were who misunderstood him and disappointed him and betrayed him and denied him, 10 friends who deserted him, yet he loved them and continued to do so to bear witness and sacrifice for them. So it's different in the extent. and It's also different in the mutuality with which they were to love. We are to love one another, not just neighbor, one another. Now, I can love God with all my heart, soul, and strength without you. I don't need you to do that. You can do it without me. I can love my neighbor without you, like I love myself, correct? And so can you. I can't love one another without you. It's different. The mutuality is necessary. I cannot love the brethren without the brethren loving me. I need you and you need me in order to fulfill this. So that's why it's new. Does that make sense? Everyone knew they were Jesus' disciples in those days. How? How do you think? Because they followed him around. Walked around Palestine and Galilee and Jerusalem. They just followed him all over the place. Those are Jesus' disciples. When Jesus is gone, how are they going to know Jesus is telling them. The mark that will distinguish you as as my people, as my followers, my disciples, when I am not present, is the power of your love for one another. The defining characteristic of Jesus' followers is their Christ-like love for other Jesus' followers, those who make up the body of Christ, the church, this church. N.T. Wright says that this Jesus-like love is the badge the Christian community wears before a watching world. Now, I want to say a few things uh, now and pick it up later that may be a little hard, but please understand and hear me. Oftentimes, believers, being unwilling to practice the depth and difficulty of this command turn their backs on people within the family of God, the one another, and pour their energies into people outside the church who don't know God. Question, is it wrong to love people outside and share and meet their needs? Right, that's right. Jesus is going to commission them to do so. Where it's wrong is that they make it an either or. I've been hurt, I've been misunderstood, or in my shame, I've hurt someone, and so I turn my back on the one another's, the believers, and I give all my attention out there. And they pat themselves on the back for being so spiritual. And they have friends who have chosen the same reaction, cheering them on. And I'm going to say, standing in front of a resurrected, blood-stained Jesus, (laughs) he's going to say, you lived in violation of my deepest, newest command. If they really were like Jesus, they'd be loving fellow Christians who rubbed them the wrong way, said something that hurt them, disagreed with their conviction, ignored them during a crisis. See, right was right. <laughs> it's simple, but it's hard. And we're going to need the teaching that's coming in the next few verse, in the next few chapters about how can we do things that is almost impossible to do in our own strength. Thanks be to God through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon Peter, like a child that just can't let an old conversation go by, it's almost like he misses this whole thing. <laughs> what does he say? Verse 30. Lord, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> Jesus said, I- I'm going, you can't come. And then he's talking about love, and he's challenging about all this. And Peter's like, yeah, yeah, but where are you going? Why? You can't come. Why? Why can't I? He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow now. You will later, trust me, but not now. Lord why can't I? I'm going to lay my life down for you, and Jesus will you really will you lay your down life, life down for me? Very true. I tell you the before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. You see, there in the upper room, among friends, it's very easy for him to declare his undying allegiance and he lay his life down. but in the unfriendly confines of the. High priest's palace and the Roman guard, suddenly it's not so easy, and he turns on Jesus. Sometimes it's easy to sit in church, right? And we hear and we say, yes, I'll follow Jesus. I'll lay my life down for you. We'll sing it, we'll say it, we believe it, and then we go to work or go to school. The people who find religion disgusting Or professors who make you feel like a fool for believing in Jesus? Neighbors who couldn't give your faith a time of day, and all of a sudden, it can be easier. We sit here and we go, oh, Peter, come on. And yet, are we not prone sometimes to do the very same thing? Well, there's your text. I want to draw a few things out. Again, make sure we understand the command and then just talk about how we do that. Now, the first thing is this. My mom, I love mom. And uh, one of the things that she said to me uh, numerous times, she said this. The church, by its very nature, is prone to conflict. Families fight, strangers don't. This is why almost every New Testament letter addresses how to deal with the inevitable relational challenges that occur within God's family. It's so easy to segregate ourselves by economics, by ethnicity, by what we like and don't like, But Jesus called the church to something radically different, not only in his day, but in ours, is to be this incredibly inclusive mixture from every tribe and nation around every spiritual level of maturity, from brand new people who are kicking the tires of this thing called Christianity to people who are as strong and mature as Ross and Carol those who are incredibly wealthy and people who have next to nothing. And this is the family of God, people who have all kinds of beliefs and opinions, and we are to live in unity of love sacrificially. Yes, love one another as I have loved you. And so must you love mom. This was so helpful to me because mom, it just woke us up. Not only all the differences, the thing is you got to be broken and admit your fallenness to be able to get in. So not only do we have all these differences, we got all this brokenness and in all of this heap, this is the body for whom Christ died and to whom we are to love one another. And Jesus is fully aware of the brokenness of his followers, yet he commands them this way. So one more time. This is commandment. Given to who? His disciples. Good. You guys need some of that quad grande americano over there. Let's go. Come on. For those that don't know, that's four shots of espresso. Um, it's given to his disciples, intentional followers of Jesus Christ. Who are we to love? One another. How are we to love as Jesus loved? I want to posit to you this morning this that the practice of loving one another, not the idea, the practice of loving one another as Jesus loves us is deep discipleship. Sometimes people would say, ah, oh, there's no discipleship in the church. <clears throat> I want to argue this, that the deepest sense and development of discipleship is loving one another as Jesus did. It is in training us, it's more effective than studying dozens of Christian books. In evaluating and measuring us, it's more effective and more accurate than all the Bible knowledge we have in revealing likeness because you and I know people can have all kinds of bible knowledge and there's relational carnage everywhere they walk so too often christians nod in agreement with jesus words as a concept but in personal practice they neglect their full application of these words they theorize it depersonalize it and rationalize rationalize away their noncompliance I know this is hard, but friends, you've got to hear this. Sometimes we even evaluate whether or not we're going to obey that command depending on how deep the hurt was, how sharp the disagreement. And so they turn their backs on one another. Focus outside or... They just go to another church. Listen, pause. There are good reasons to leave a church. I'm not saying everyone will leave a church. Some of you left the church to come and start this one. It was good. But when it's because you hurt someone and you don't want to face it or because someone's hurt you and you're, you know, resentful of that person, to just change a church because of that and not try to work that out. That's what Jesus... I just... I just say, it is deepest discipleship of learning how to love as Jesus loved. It really is. Are you okay? It's heavy words, isn't it? I know it is. So, very quickly, how then do we love as Jesus loves us? Well, first thing we do is we fellowship with one another. We fellowship with one another. And when I use the word fellowship, I'm thinking of the richest, deepest meaning of this word. The word in the original language is koinonia. And when you look at what does koinonia mean, and you look at every single use of it in the New Testament, you see it's a multifaceted word. It's a wonderful word, most often translated fellowship, but it also means, like, for example, one, when uh, the apostles were coming and Paul went to a church in Galatia, they extended to him the right hand of fellowship. What does it mean? They accepted him into the body to welcome and accept one another is a part of fellowship, that's how you love as Christ loves, you accept those regardless of whatever socioeconomic race they are, whatever uh, place they are, whatever ethnicity we are. We, we accept one another, wherever we are. It's fellowship. It, it, it means communion, sharing, partnership contribution. It's this whole sense of being together, communing in the things of the Lord, eating together, encouraging one another, sharing meals together, sharing material goods together, partnering together in the work of God. It's fellowship around the things that Christ is doing in us and talking about it. It's all of this and more. So to love as Jesus loves means to fellowship with one another. And I'm just going to say, It's pretty tough to do when you're sitting at home and your PJ's watching someone talk. 1 Peter. Oh, Peter finally wised up to it when he wrote his gospel. His his epistle said, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each used a gift, use it to serve one another. Yes, we fellowship. That's another part of it, is serving together. Secondly, we bear with one another. If you're going to love the way Jesus loves, you've got to bear with one another. You see, when you and I see each other only on occasion, we only see the best sides of us. But the longer we are together and the more involved we are with one another, we begin to see each other's weaknesses, irritabilities, flaws, sins, differentness. And Jesus knows that and he calls us to love anyway. I had some wonderful friends, some of you have met them, they were here recently from Ottawa. And I just love them, why? because they just, doesn't matter who I am, they love me. They accept, they just (laughs) completely, they bear with me. Just to give you an idea, well, I shouldn't say that. Well, maybe I should, but anyway. First youth pastorate up in, in, uh, in Ottawa, went to their cottage, took care of his boys and used their car, went flying around a corner, I had standard brakes, his were automatic, and boy, I hit the brakes and locked them up and went right off the road into a solid rock wall, wrecked his car. He bared with me. Love youth pastors. There's hope for any one of us. But you know, I can go to pier and bed and I can get up in the morning in wrinkled sleeping clothes, not even looking in the mirror, you know? When Leah wakes up, she looks like she walks out of a magazine. I'm like Picasso face, right? But I can walk out there and grab a coffee and sit down with them, and they just love me and accept me. I don't have to put on anything. Man, I love that. Can you imagine this? Getting, I'm not suggesting we all have bedhead day at church, but you know, maybe there's something to it when you're totally loved and accepted. And in all of your flaws and your weaknesses, you're, they bear with one another. Jesus says, we got to keep doing that. In Ephesians 4, he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You want to walk in a manner or live worthy of the name of Jesus Christ in your life? Then with all gentleness and humility, with patience, bear with one another. You don't need to bear with one another when everything's great and you love that person and everything's good. You've never had a disagreement. But bearing with one another when they've let you down. Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul said, to put on compassionate ones as God's chosen people with kindness and humility, meekness, bearing with one another, with patience. First Peter says it again, love each other earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We can do things with each, to each other inadvertently, this or that. If you deeply love over half of that stuff, I'm sure... We just cover in grace, right? If it sticks to your spirit, you should deal with it. But we, as we grow in our maturity, we we can cover a lot of stuff with love. Here's the third way. We forgive one another. I believe that there is no greater test and revealer of love like Jesus, than the practice of forgiving each other. Pra- forgiveness is not, you know, denial. It doesn't deny there wasn't pain. Doesn't ignore. It doesn't. It just. It acknowledges that there's been an offense and a misunderstanding, a disappointment. There's a debt there somehow. If you want to choose to not allow that to disrupt your harmony, you can cover it. But if it sticks, deal with it. If one has a complaint against another, Colossians 3 said, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So in light of how often Jesus forgives you and me, we are to forgive one another. And that's hard, isn't it? It's hard to go and humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. And it's hard to extend forgiveness. Now, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean trust if there's been some significant violations going on. You can forgive. Trust needs to be earned again, perhaps. But you can forgive. Now, I just got to say, how serious is this issue of forgiveness to the Father and to Jesus? I'm going to say it is way more serious than Christians think it is. Christians justify their non-forgiveness. But to Jesus and to the Father and to the Holy Spirit, it is absolutely detrimental to your development in faith. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, which we love to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He says at the end of that, if you forgive one another your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive one another, what does Jesus say? Your heavenly Father will not forgive you. To make it more poignant, Jesus told a story about a servant who owed someone like 20 years' wages. And he went to the master and begged him, please forgive me. And he made all this reason. And he pleaded with him. And the master said, I'm going to forgive the whole thing. Go in peace. And in the shadow of the building from which he just walked out, he sees a fellow servant who owed him like a third of a year's wages. And he grabs him around the throat and demands that he pays him back. And the guy doesn't, although he's pleading. And he has him thrown in jail until he can work it off. The other servants look around. They see that. They go back to the master and said, you should see what just happened. The master called that guy back in. He said, I forgave you all of that, and you did that to someone for that? And in the story, he throws him in prison and sends him over to the jailers until he can work it off. This is moral of the story Forever. And then Jesus says something absolutely difficult. He says this. So your Father in heaven will do to you if you do not forgive. Some of the hardest teaching in the entire New Testament. And friends, I just got to say, this is how serious the Father takes forgiveness in the family of God this is how serious Jesus takes forgiveness among his followers and it is serious to the Holy Spirit for in Ephesians chapter 4 it says it grieves him when we don't do that so are you okay friends we must learn to forgive must. And the last thing, we sacrifice for one another. And you and I know we're well aware that Jesus sacrificed for us continually, leaving the heavenly dimension and all the glory of heaven. He, you know, became a human being, settling all that aside. He entered in his entire process of crucifixion and died for us. He's always been giving up, always putting himself up because he loves us. Yet for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so Paul says, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved and gave himself as a fragrant sacrifice. This is how we walk in love. We sacrifice for each other. Time, energy, resources, reputation. So Hebrews 10 says, let's consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. as some are in the habit, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Yes, it takes sacrifice. To love real people right in front of us. Most of us in this room would agree that the church should love each other and that the community is a very important thing. But I end with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said this. He said, those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the actual Christian community itself become destroyers of that community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Friends, you can love an idea or you can love the actual people in front of you. If you actually love the people in front of you and beside you and all around you here in this church, We're going to have a wonderful, healthy, God-honoring witness into our world, and the the depth and substance of what happens in this church will be great. But if you just love an idea called community without loving, you will actually become one that will destroy the community yourself because you're unwilling to do what it takes to actually make the real thing happen. May God help us by His Spirit to love one another as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, especially in deep fellowship, bearing with, forgiving, and sacrificing for each other. That will help to create a wonderful and powerful church. Amen.